What's up, heroes, and welcome to the Producer Life Podcast, episode 95. Before we get started, I've got a couple of quick announcements. First, on March 1st, the Human Music Podcast has an episode coming out where I got interviewed. It felt pretty weird being the one on the receiving end of the questions, but it was a lot of fun. Make sure to check that out. You can find them at thehumanmusicpodcast.com. I'm kind of on a roll this year producing new music. I released my first explicit track called Fuck Susie on the 11th of this month. It's an electro house piece about our favorite robocaller, Susie. You know who I'm talking about. Hi, this is Susie calling with the Vehicle Service Department. Anyway, I'll have a link in the show notes page. I've got a much happier house track coming out on March 1st called Arigato, which features a traditional Japanese koto accompanied by house music chords, Asian percussion, and a funky bass line. I'll have a sneak preview for you at the end of the show, so make sure you listen through to the end and then pre-save the track from the link on the show notes page. Just look for ProducerLifePodcast.com, episode 95. And now, today we're going to welcome back Sean Giovanni. Gio is a producer, audio engineer, and the multi-talented owner of The Record Shop in Nashville, Tennessee. During his career, Gio has worked with big acts and labels to include Alabama, John Legend, Little John, Meatloaf, Sister Hazel, The Wallflowers, Sony Music, Warner Music Group, Universal, and a bunch more. If you missed Gio's first interview, make sure to check out episode 66, where he talked about how he got his start, overcoming adversity, and his process for working with clients at the record shop. In today's episode, we focus on some of his recent initiatives. Gio's been doing some really innovative stuff to broaden the record shop's offerings to include helping artists with professional live streaming and social media content creation. He also offers tips for better storytelling in your songwriting, and he walks us through his basic mixing process. But first, cue the intro music. All right, Gio, welcome back to the Producer Life Podcast. Great to be here, man. Thanks for having me back. For people that haven't heard episode 66, that's when you were last on last April, um, give us a quick just overview of what you do with the record shop and what sort of services you provide and and a brief sort of synopsis of what you guys are all about. Absolutely. Well, welcome. My name is Giovanni. I'm a sonic storyteller, and I own a studio called The Record Shop that's based in Nashville, Tennessee. We're a multimedia production company uh, that helps artists achieve their artistic vision in a wide variety of different ways. Most of the work that I personally focus on is record production, but as a company, we also help artists with visual production, with live broadcast, uh, with remote recording, um, as well as developing marketing content and just content in general. Uh, and multimedia assets to help them uh, build their brand and get their art out to the world. Okay. That was fantastic. You've done that a few times. <laughs> so as I was listening to that though, I, I feel like, and, and I was listening to the original episode earlier today, I feel like you are placing much more emphasis on the, the multimedia end of things. I don't remember you using that kind of word when we were talking about the studio before. Is that is that sort of reflective of sort of a broader direction you're taking the studio? Uh, that's always been stuff that I've been involved in. But for a long period of time, I was more involved from a uh, project manager standpoint where I would 
be working on a project as a producer with an artist and then refer them to someone within my circle that I felt like would be a good fit to, to work with them on that, that side of things. And in some cases, I would get involved in the creative side, but a lot of times I would just bring someone on to help out with that aspect. One of the big changes that happened uh, during COVID and has continued to grow um, since then over the past couple of years has been getting more in-house with the uh, video aspect of things that we do. And that stemmed out of us trying to create a new resource for artists to do live stream shows and broadcasts from the studio. So we talked about that a little bit. I was just getting started with it back then. And right away, it, uh, it really took off on the performance side of things where artists could live stream really high quality audio and visual uh, concerts uh, from a studio environment. But one of the, a few of the really interesting things that stemmed out of that, uh, one of them was that we connected with a really cool company called Song Division that provides music experiences for corporate events. And before COVID, uh, they, similarly to us, they were doing stuff on location. Uh, so they would go out to the the conference and, and their team would uh, work in, in different groups with the employees on, on different exercises that were team building uh, exercises for the most part built around uh, the music uh, process. So, so some cases they might write a, a theme song for the company uh, with different groups of employees and the, and the team would work together to create that music. Um, mm -hmm. Well, you know, COVID happened and all these events started going online and, and, and that business really, um, and during that time, that business really grew. So we were able to come in and support them with providing uh, a live stream facility for them to be able to do really high quality events. And their clients loved it and it, it turned into a great thing. So we were able to expand with having the, this, this equipment and, and uh, resources and facility to do it we were able to expand into um, a much wider range of content creation than I thought that we would initially because my initial focus was just really on artist performances. Uh, so then we started doing podcasts, uh, hosting podcasts, um, doing, uh, so then we started hosting podcasts and uh, doing things like uh, workshops and uh, virtual mixers and stuff where people would come in and give presentations and, and that kind of thing. Uh, we did a couple things with some churches, um, and it just uh, it, it expanded really quickly, and it's, it's been a lot of fun to uh, to do. That's fantastic. And so, tell me in Nashville right now where you are. I mean, is the pandemic and pandemic restrictions are they kind of waning where you can get back to normal? And is the online business, the podcasting, the live streaming, is that continuing strong even as the pandemic is receding? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, Nashville was pretty uh, laid back with, you know, restrictions. There was a short period of time where, where things got shut down a bit. But for the most part, on the recording industry side of things, um, nothing really slowed down. If anything, our, our business grew because more artists wanted to be in the studio creating and, uh, and there wasn't any kind of uh, slow time during like touring season and that sort of thing. I mean, things just kind of kept, kept flowing. So we were very fortunate in that aspect, as artists have started to go out on the road and as events have started to happen in person, I think one of the things that some event organizers have recognized is that um, there's some advantages to the virtual side of things. And so there's still very substantial um, events that are being put together in that, uh, that virtual world. And, and in some cases, uh, um, with one event that we did, it was an in-person event, but also had a virtual aspect to it for people that couldn't attend. So I think yeah. that that's something that will absolutely continue on 
because now you can expand your audience, whether that's a show or a conference or an event where if someone can't make it there, they can view it online and, and, uh, and be a part of it that way. Yeah. It, it seems like it is the ultimate in scalability. I, I was uh, visiting my parents uh, a little while ago and they offered to take me to an opera, which was being streamed. It was the, the Met Opera um, and it was being streamed at movie theaters. And I think there were three of us in the audience and we thought, wow, this is, you know, how does that work for them? But they said there were 120,000 people watching all over the planet, which obviously would not fit in their theater. But, you know, you, you look at that ability to scale up around the planet using live streaming and it's just a phenomenal opportunity. It makes, makes sense to take your hard work and, and make it available globally. Absolutely. And another thing that, that stemmed out of that was we started to recognize, well, we, now we have this situation set up with multiple cameras and an ability to switch between those angles live. And we started experimenting with doing content creation days where we would bring an artist in and we might have do some like sit down interview style, like short form video uh, stuff for like Instagram and TikTok. And then we could do like a full uh, acoustic performance of a song. They could have a portion of the day where they brought a band in and did um, did like full band, you know, live uh, sessions. And we could film it all and record it all. And all of it could be edited uh, for the most part on the spot. So we were able to create a really effective way to be able to batch create a bunch of content uh, in a way that is um, pretty economical for an artist that's always trying to create um, new stuff to share and new ways to stay engaged with their their artists. So that's become a new thing that, that really was just a idea that stemmed out of now that we have these tools at our disposal, how else can we use them to be valuable to artists? And that's been really helpful. That's, that's a terrific idea. Yeah. Um, tell me, let, let's focus on the live streaming for a minute. Tell me sort of, this is something that came about a year and a half, two years ago. What are some of the lessons you've learned moving from sort of your early phases of live streaming to the production capabilities that you've got today? Um, well, I would say one of the lessons that I guess I had learned before this, but I think was really important that I learned was to not try to do everything yourself, to be the expert at the thing that you're an expert at and find the right people to surround yourself with that can be an expert at those other things that you're not an expert at and work with a team to be able to help uh, make something happen. And you know, that can be done in a variety of ways within a new endeavor but in this specific thing, I recognize that while I could, you know, get my way around a camera and, you know, I understand editing and I understand signal flow and equipment well enough to kind of figure out how a device works, uh, videography and directing a broadcast is not my profession. So I found someone who uh, did do that as a profession. And um, fortunately, I found him at a time where he was just launching a new business. And he was really eager to be able to jump in with our team and become our go-to director uh, for these events. Um, so it was a really fortunate thing that, that, that I met him at the, at the time when this, when this sort of all happened. But my, from, the, from the get-go, my focus was to discover who that person would be for our team to be able to um, help everything run smoothly. And for me to be able to still keep a priority on what I love doing the most, which is producing records and, and handling the audio side of these different types of content creation. Sure. So I, 
I suspect that most of my listeners, their live streaming setups for uh, the pandemic were probably webcams, maybe a digital SLR, you know, OBS, um, maybe a green screen, uh, you know, hopefully some decent lighting, but you know, not nothing fancy. So you're talking about using a team. How many people are you using on the professional end and what does your setup look like in terms of equipment and um, I guess the physical space that you use for the live stream? Um, well, the size of the crew depends upon the size of the production and, you know, how, how many, um, how much talent is, is in the, in the frame is, you know, is it a full band? Uh, is that band a three piece band or a six piece band? Um, and, uh, and what type of performance is it, you know, is it, uh, is it a group of people just having a conversation, uh, in like a workshop sort of setting, or is it a live performance with musicians? Um, so the crew can, can range from, you know, two people to five people, probably depending upon the size of the production. Um, the equipment that, that we went with was black magic cameras, a uh, variety of different, um, lenses, uh, some wide angle lenses, some tighter lenses. Um, and then we started getting some cameras on sliders, um, there's some pretty affordable options for that out there. If you, I mean, you could go on Amazon and, and, and find some. And so that's what we started with, but we found that that equipment didn't last very long. Um, and so I quickly found, learned another lesson about the importance of just making a little bit of that extra investment where you can to think more long-term into it. I did that with cameras. Um, but when I started thinking about the accessories, I thought, well, let's just get like an entry level thing, you know, to start with. And it was great to, you know, to begin, um, but I found that once that piece broke and the, you know, the controller for it that went out cost more than the device itself, if I'd wanted to replace it, you know, then we started, um, investing into, you know, higher quality aspects of the accessories, um, like the, the, the lighting and, and sliders and that sort of thing. Um, then, then we incorporated a, a jib, which is like a, a crane, um, that can, uh, slide the camera pretty high up in the air and get smooth movements, you know, through. Um, and some steady cam setups where the camera operator can have the camera like up on their shoulders and it stays steady and they can walk around um, with it. Uh, but for someone that's just, you know, getting into it, it's, it's not, we, we wanted to be able to have that level of equipment in order to be able to take on um, higher level projects and scale what we were doing. And uh, I'm fortunate to be in a position where those relationships are there where I can put the word out and put the team together. And, um, fortunately those projects, you know, just started rolling in. Um, but that definitely came from years and years of building, you know, relationships and then kind of knowing who to call to give the good word that we were offering this sort of thing. But if I was just getting started with that and didn't have that same sort of network and facility to be able to integrate all of this stuff into, there's some, um, I would start with, uh, with investing in a little bit of a higher end camera, um, in some cases, uh, getting a higher end lens can make a mid-grade camera um, have a better picture quality. Um, I would do some, some research on understanding just basic lighting techniques. Um, just getting a couple um, uh, basic key lights as opposed to just using the natural light in your room and adjusting your camera to, you know, to work with it can really make a huge difference on the uh, picture quality. And uh, having a couple different camera angles, uh, if it's possible, can definitely help. Uh, and Blackmagic is a great company that has all these different accessories. And they, they go from uh, a pretty low budget range to you know, the, the higher like professional grade range. But all of their products are, are um, well built and you know, work well. They have a, a small switcher that they build that you can just kind of put on your desk. Um, 
and it uh, it allows you to jump between um, different cameras uh, pretty easily. Um, so it's something where where you could you could stream and move it uh, in in between that. It also has the audio hooked up with it, and then it's just one one cable that you plug into the computer. Um, so another suggestion would be to have a device like that or any sort of device where you can have an external microphone that's that's connected with the camera and then you just have a, a maybe a capture card a little usb device that you plug into your computer um, and it gets the audio and video signal um, sent in there uh you know I, I think people would would initially just start with like a cell phone and using the, the audio on there um you know it can work okay in the you know in the right environment maybe but if you want to step your game up a little bit you know getting using getting a microphone and getting a device so you can um run those signals together uh, can definitely help, you know, improving the audio quality and improving the, the visual quality. Um, there's a lot of great products out there that, that aren't a gigantic investment to jump into uh, to make a difference. And um, I think that if you're, if you're just doing this on your own as, a, you know, as an artist, um, the quality, you know, will, will definitely help. Uh, you know, the talent's got to be there and you got to be do some, doing something that's entertaining, obviously, at a foundation. But if your quality's, you know, better, I think people are going to watch a little bit longer, pay a little bit more attention. Um, as long as that's combined with something that's, you know, an engaging, you know, performance. If you're someone that is trying to maybe expand your your production company to be able to include this sort of thing or offer it to artists, well, then, you know, having better quality is going to help set yourself apart in that way. And just asking yourself, is there a level up from where I'm thinking budget wise that I could figure out a way to, um, to you know, to, to work towards uh, in order to improve it? rather than just trying to work with uh, what you have. But if you're in a position where you got to work with what you have, then try to get creative. Go on YouTube and find some DIY suggestions for how to um, up the quality of something without necessarily having to, to up your gear. Um, I think just, just doing, the, doing the research and finding the system that works best for you uh, is definitely a good place to start. Yeah. And, and I really like the way that once you have better gear, you've looked for opportunities to use that in a variety of ways. So, you know, with the videography and whatnot, I, I was really interested. I, I saw on your Facebook page that you have been helping with Crank It Up TV. And so it's almost like you're becoming a video production studio in addition to the, I, I guess, more traditional audio role that a studio would have. Um, can, can you talk about what you've done with Crank It Up TV and, and sort of how you've leveraged the equipment and the experience that you have? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, to take it back a little bit, um, when I first moved to Nashville and I wasn't able to get a job in a studio, I started working around freelance in town. And eventually I was able to get a part-time gig at a voiceover studio. And so what my job was as the engineer was to record uh, vo vo vocal talent uh, doing prompts for telephone answering systems. So like if you called your cable company and needed to pay your bill and they say, press one for this and press two for this. Uh, I sat there uh, at, you know, a few hours a week uh, recording people reading those, those prompts, you know, it's pretty crazy because you hear those things and you don't really think about like somebody got paid to say that and record it and then edit it, and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, get it all in that system. And uh, so that was my first uh, job where I was actually hired by a studio to, to do work as opposed to, um, you know, freelance thing. And I mentioned that because it, it introduced me to a different side of audio that I hadn't really thought about as even like being an option. Um, and it also helped me focus on um, more as opposed to like the creative technical side of shaping sounds and kind of creating new things and building out an arrangement with the song. Um, I had to focus on very pristine, um, focused uh, enunciation, um, words, uh, decibel level, 
making sure that certain um, specifications are correct within the audio files, understanding conversion, you know, that sort of thing. And so it was a good foundation for some of the opportunities that came later on uh, for me to be able to get to a point where I could handle audio for a network television show. Uh, even though my role, my focus had always been on, you know, just producing records. Um, the next thing that happened uh, a little bit later on was I had met a gentleman who was creating an app where um, celebrities would teach whatever their skill set was. So we do it with professional athletes and, uh, and musicians, um, uh, cooks, um, just all, all kinds of uh, different people, kind of similar to how Masterclass uh, developed. And okay. I, uh, I was thinking it sounded like Masterclass a lot. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of, it was an early version of that, that type of, uh, approach to education. And, um, it was at a time where I wasn't working full time yet in audio and I was just really looking for any gig that I could, I could get. And the opportunity came up and it sounded like a lot of fun to be able to travel around and, and meet some pro athletes and, uh, and, and musicians and, um, dive into this side of things. And I had enough knowledge with, uh, video editing, um, and remote audio capture to be able to handle uh, the gig. And so through that, I, I got uh, very proficient at uh, recording um, interviews, uh, blending in background music, uh, building out captions, and then editing the, you know, the video content for it. Uh, and, and so that was a good education in that. And then a little bit later on, um, I was asked to produce the um, theme song for a documentary. And after doing that, the uh, producer at the very end of, of um, post-production, um, his video, his audio editor uh, got a gig on a big film and had to bail. And so last minute, he needed somebody to help him finish the dialogue replacement and mixing of the dialogue replacement into the rest of the audio um, bed for the documentary. And uh, so I said, absolutely, I'll do that. That sounds like a you know fun, interesting thing. And so I immediately went online and started doing research on <laughs> how to do this properly and trying to learn all those specifications and terminology and stuff. And, um, and so through that, I learned a lot about um, broadcast uh, delivery specs, um, how to master a um, audio bed um, for, a, uh, for a film um, or, or for a, a visual uh, release for distribution. And uh, that experience was really helpful, you know, in, in, uh, in, in preparing. So um, those three things um, led up to me being comfortable within that environment. And then every once in a while, um, just through, you know, you work with one person, another person, and then a lot of times it's when these sort of things come up. So the, uh, the Crank It Up uh, Garage uh, show came up the same way. Um, they, had, uh, they had filmed it and they were getting ready to release it pretty quickly and they needed help on the audio editing side. And I had like a couple days to, to mix the first episode um, before it went, uh, before it aired. Um, so they just said, you know, hey, is this something that you've done before? And fortunately, it was something that I had said yes to experimenting with before. And so this was really my moment to be able to jump into it at a much higher, um, you know, national TV, you know, broadcast level. Um, and uh, in the, the opportunity came through a relationship that I had with um, uh, an artist, uh, big and rich, they're a big uh, country group and big Kenny is one of the hosts of the show. And, um, their co-manager, Charlie Panaccio is the other, uh, host of the show. And, uh, so Charlie called and said, Hey man, we're in, we're in a bind. We need this audio, um, you know, put together. Can you help me out? I said, absolutely. Let's, you know, let's make it happen. So I had that relationship there already. 
Um, but I wouldn't have been able to say yes to that had I not jumped at these little opportunities early on in my career that weren't necessarily what my focus was, but that I knew that by expanding my knowledge and skill set, you know, at some point it could be uh, valuable. Um, so fortunately, I was, you know, ready, ready for it and able to, uh, to do it. And it was a lot of fun to, to, to work on. I would highly recommend watching the show. It's so cool. Uh, they travel around and find um, custom cars. And, um, and there's a lot of shows about like, you know, car builds and, and that sort of thing. But what I love about their show is that they tell the story about the passion behind why someone did it. So you learn a lot about not only the vehicle itself, um, but the, but what inspired it and the impact that, 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 that story can have on people. Um, and I just love storytelling and, and, and people finding their purpose and being able to live out their purpose through really fun, um, you know, endeavors like that. So it hit, like it checked every box for me. So I was all about doing it. Okay. Yeah, that does sound like fun. I was looking at one of the ads for it and it talked about, uh, what happens when you attach a rocket engine to an Amish buggy, <laughs> which yeah, I may have to try to go find that. And that thing is insane. There's a jet engine on the back of an Amish buggy. Uh, and they flew the thing around this, uh, this like airport runway. Uh, it was so loud. Uh, it's crazy. Oh my gosh. All right. Um, so that's, that's awesome. So are, is that something you are actively marketing now with the record shop to help with, um, I don't know what the correct terminology is, but sort of audio post-production for, for movies or, or TV shows. Um, I would say it's something that I have the capability to help with, but it's not something that I'm necessarily the, the most passionate about. So if the right project comes along and it's something that I can, that I can be a helpful asset for, um, then I'm absolutely up for doing it, but it's not necessarily something that, uh, that I'm trying to expand into yet another thing that, that we offer. I do think it's important to have those few things that you can have your focus on and not spread yourself too thin with trying to, um, manage, take being, being decent at doing, you know, a bunch of different things. So uh, I know the people that work in that, that world, you know, full time, that's their thing, you know, that that's all they do my thing is producing records, but it's a lot of fun to, to, to do new things, you know, and different things from time to time. Uh, so it's something that I'm open to and I can help with, but I think for the most part, those opportunities will continue to come just through, um, you know, the folks that I work with and, and that, but, um, I, I think it's, it's important to, to, you know, to mention that when you're presented with that sort of opportunity, and this happened with me also with uh, sync licensing for film and TV, um, where I got some great opportunities to get to produce some songs that ended up in some big movies. And I really enjoyed that process. But as I got more into it, I recognized this isn't necessarily what I want to be doing every day. So I'll be open to it if the opportunity comes along. But the things that I'm actively pursuing are producing records um, and, and helping to create um, content for artists to, to promote those records. Okay. Well, I, I definitely want to circle back to the record production and, and I kind of want to talk about storytelling because that's something that you know you highlighted a minute ago. But before we do that, I, I did want to ask one more question about a, a Facebook post from last summer. You are very involved with all sorts of community projects and, and ways to promote the business, but also to you know give back to the music community. And it looks like last summer you judged a beat battle for producers. And obviously, that's of, of interest to uh, the audience that's listening today. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, beat battle and how that worked and what your role was as judge? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, that battle was um, put on by a organization called Nashville is not just country, which is a really great organization that puts a spotlight on artists in Nashville that are not country. And uh, one of the events that they that they host is a uh, is a beat battle. Um, and uh, so the the founder of that organization asked me if I wanted to come on and uh, be a judge for it. I said absolutely. I'd love to you know support the community in that way. And um, through the process, it was really cool to be able to meet um, different uh, beat producers that I hadn't met before that were in town. There there were a number of really young um, ones as well. I think the youngest one might have been like uh, 10 years old. And that was cool to see. It really, that was a really inspiring thing to see him there with his parents and him battling against these adults. And uh, it just, it took me back to my early days of falling in love with, with music, being really young and not necessarily having a ton of people around me that were doing the same thing. And so also being kind of thrown into a little bit of an older environment um, to be able to, to learn from. And uh, I think one of the great things about finding ways to be able to give back to your community outside of just the support that comes from it is the inspiration that can come, especially when it's a youth driven thing. I do uh, a lot of work with the Recording Academy with their Grammy U program and Grammy Camp. Grammy Camp is for high school students. Grammy U is for um, college students. And that also, while my intention is, is just to share what I can to be able to help mentor um, people that are passionate about making a career in this industry, I also get a lot out of it um, just through being, being inspired by their drive and, you know, and passion. When we get into doing something where it becomes you know, your job, it never really feels like work to me, but, some, but, but without keeping that perspective, um, I, I would assume that it could, that it could become pretty easy to just sort of get, um, maybe get complacent, um, or forget sort of how blessed we are to be able to just hang out and make music for a living. Um, so <laughs> being in those environments really help give me a strong perspective and it's really inspiring to be able to go back to work the next day and, uh, and just keep being able to pursue that, that dream that started when I was really young. That's, that's fantastic. So it, it, it recharges you in addition to helping support the community. Absolutely. Your, your core focus is on producing records. That's sort of the, the, the core of your core of your business. And you talked about how much you love storytelling and, and you've talked a little bit about arranging songs. Can you talk to us a little bit about the role of storytelling in good songwriting? And maybe if you have any, um, ideas or thoughts about how that might apply to electronic music, for example. Absolutely. Um, well, with music in general, um, I think with songwriting, uh, if there's lyrics involved, um, one of the strongest practices that I think applies to the idea behind telling the story is the concept of uh, showing instead of telling through a lyric. So the idea of thinking about what is this lyric and by reading it, am I just saying uh, very plainly and verbatim uh, what I mean, or am I showing it through some sort of metaphor, imagery, um, or explanation that takes the listener to that, that place? So when we're thinking about songwriting from a lyrical standpoint, I think that that's a really helpful practice and a good exercise for songwriters to go through to um, read through their lyrics from that perspective and ask, is this painting a clearer picture? And I think if you look at, um, you know, legendary songs, timeless songs, you know, really successful songwriting, for the most part, you'll find a, a pretty consistent um, use of that practice within the lyrical writing of things. 
when I'm focusing on things from a sonic storytelling standpoint, um, uh, I'm listening to the uh, to the lyric, um, the the story, and I'm imagining the environment in which this story exists. And so, if that's um, partying in a club and going hard, that's great. That's an environment, and I'm going to imagine that club. I'm going to imagine the uh, bottles coming to the table and everybody dancing, and the energy, um, the lights all over. And I want the music to feel like it has that type of movement. If it's a song that's about, you know, a, a sad story or something, you know, that might be a different environment. Um, and uh, so you, I, I sort of, I kind of paint a picture in my mind about the music video. And I'm kind of imagining it as I'm thinking about the instrumentation and the parts and, and putting together the sounds. And that's a lot of what, of what leads, um, you know, the tonality of it. So if something is a, a more somber, more mellow sort of vibe, um, you know, I may be using some, uh, some darker sounds, some things that have a little bit more edge to them. Um, if it's a sound design thing, um, I'm probably going to be cutting more top end than I am adding stuff, you know, to certain things to, to make it feel a little bit darker than brighter. Um, using mm-hmm. a lot of saturation and like subtle distortion, um, to things to give it a little bit of an edge. Um, just experimenting with the sound and trying to shape it so it feels like the mood, um, of the track. Um, and then I think from an arrangement standpoint, the other thing that I think about with storytelling is the dynamics of a song. So is the energy of the song, something that is going, um, you know, pedal to the metal from the beginning, are we coming in with the beat, you know, hard and knocking and it just continues on because that's the energy that it has, or is this intended to be something that kind of starts from, an introduction and then builds into something into a climax and then comes back down to some reflection and then builds back up to, to take you on and ride out through the sunset, you know? So I think about dynamics in that way is the, um, is the beat going to drop out at some point? Is everything going to get filtered out and then open back up? And I also think about that a lot with transitions when I'm, when I'm thinking about how the sound is telling the story is this next section supposed to be bigger and more anthemic than the previous one? If so, what can I do to create a setup for that? Um, does it mean that I'm going to drop something out right before that comes in in order to make that next section feel bigger, which is a great trick to be able to add energy and dynamic to something without necessarily adding something new. Um, or is there a fill or some sort of new sound that needs to be entered there? Uh, or is there a melodic hook that's going to come in that's going to say, hey, I want you to listen to me now because I got something important, you know, to say. Uh, the, the, the section before that was just setting you up for this, you know, for this moment. Um, so I, I try to find those little moments within a production. Um, and when I'm building a track out, I'm just listening to it over and over and, and continuing to re-paint uh, that picture in my mind of what this song is supposed to say and what story is being told with the sounds and making sure that everything is there. So all those moments, you know, are happening. And once I have the foundation of the track, then I'm going back through and listening for those little sort of ear candy things that might support something um, that's being said. So if there's a certain lyric that has a certain energy to it, that might be different than the one before. Is there a little like weird quirky sound that I could put in there? That's almost like a, a sound effect that you would hear in a movie that would support whatever's, um, being said or create some more suspense or drama, um, or energy or aggression or something like that. Uh, so I'm always trying to find little, little clever ways to not necessarily take up a lot of space, you know, allow the foundation to, 
uh, to be what it is, make sure that you have a strong foundation with the groove, that there's a really clear, you know, progression, that there's a good motif or hook that's running through uh, the different sections of the songs, uh, song. But then what are the other little pieces, the little ear candy that I can drop in to just give it a little flavor, um, you know, here and there. Um, and I would say that then within that process, I'm also thinking about where things are placed within the, the mix. So uh, panning wise. And are those things moving throughout the track? Uh, one thing that I like doing a lot if I'm trying to create a dynamic um, impact on a certain section is taking taking the, the things that are kind of spread wide in the track and bringing them in towards the center uh, for a section that's happening before a big section is supposed to happen. And then automating that panning to open up uh, when that big section happens so it feels like the track just kind of explodes and gets wider um, in that point in the song. Um, so just, just thinking about how the sound can be shaped and then um, uh, arranged and then adjusted and automated as a track progressed to be able to make sure that every moment is staying in line with that story that's being told. Um, do you, talking about that last trick of, of bringing elements in before an, uh, a moment where everything is supposed to open up, are you moving individual instruments and tracks in, or are you just kind of automating the overall width of the track down to be more narrow before, say, the drop of a song? I think it would depend on the style of music, but most of the music that I work in is like top 40 mainstream music within pop, hip hop, gospel, um, country, and R&B. So mm -hmm. within those genres, um, there's, there's usually going to be some things that are living out wide, you know, maybe room mics on, a, on drums or something that's creating ambience. So I'm not, I don't necessarily want to have like the, the whole, the whole track do that. But, um, one example might be like taking the guitars or taking like the, the synth or something like that and keeping it more panned in until you get to that, uh, that section. Uh, I would say in general, I'm going to do it based on, um, individual tracks, uh, and trying to create that, that movement. Um, but if it was something that was a remix that I was doing where I might be working with like stems and it's more of a, um, uh, instrumental based thing, um, then it could make sense to, to just do it on the whole, you know, track itself. Okay. That, uh, that was a great, great rundown. And I really like the way that you described sort of visualizing the music video to look at the story that an instrumental is telling, e you know, even if there isn't an intent to create a music video later on, you know, picturing it in your head uh, to help you figure out elements and instruments and, and how you're going to mix. Uh, so I guess I'm curious, you know, you you do this professionally. What are your go-to plugins and, and do you have a, a set number of tools that you commonly go to? I, I think you use Pro Tools, correct? Uh, Pro Tools is the main DAW that I use. Uh, I kind of use them all uh, for varying reasons. Yeah, it, de it depends, but everything usually ends up in Pro Tools. I prefer to mix in Pro Tools, and I prefer to edit audio in Pro Tools. I think that those are uh, at least the, the audio editing is is just kind of significantly better, in my opinion, in Pro Tools. And I can work really fast in there as well. Um, but I get some things from from producers where they do everything in Logic and they want it to stay in Logic. Um, I had a track the other day that was mixed in Ableton and they wanted me to help them with, um, with just like final mix revisions to help them get it across the finish line. And, um, there's an artist that records here a lot, but mixes themselves. Uh, so I'm happy to, you know, to work in their, their platform if it's what they, they prefer. 
Um, I've done, I did a virtual mix through Studio One um, the other day where someone was in another state and um, wanted uh, to, in a similar thing where like they mix their stuff themselves, but they wanted some help, you know, finishing it out. So I do some, um, I don't know, mix consulting like that, I guess, uh, to be able to help artists that we're working with be able to do better work, you know, at home and on their own. Uh, but in general, yeah, I work in, work in pro tools. I really look at all the software as just, you know, different tools that you can pull from depending upon what you're going for. I think that, uh, to start with, you should find a couple things that you can really master and that, you, you know, you, you really understand how they work and what they're going to do. And then as you get comfortable with that, the process more of making the decisions of, 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 how, of what you do with the tool um, then once you really know how to use it, then I would maybe expand it out in, into some other options. Uh, okay. So when I'm, when I'm making a selection for something, you know, let's say EQ, for example, um, I'm going to make a decision based on a couple things. What type of uh, treatment am I looking for? Is it going to be like a broad uh, adjustment? Am I just trying to put more air into the track? Uh, in, in which case I might, uh, go towards a Pultec EQ or an API EQ, or I really like the top end of, you know, of those. Um, or there's a, a company called Mag uh, that makes a really great EQ that has a, a, a nice um, top end um, shelf on it. Um, but if I'm going to do more, um, uh, but if I'm going to do more, um, what the, what's the right word for that? Um, Oh, but if I'm going to do more like surgical EQ, um, then I'm probably going to use like uh, the FabFilter Pro-Q uh, or an SSL plugin um, or an SSL hardware um, unit. Uh, and for, for the reason of being able to, you know, fine tune something a little bit more and really zero in on a frequency instead of having something set. Um, but I know which tool I'm going to use because you know, I learned how to use the basic stuff that just came with Pro Tools, you know, when it, when it started and knew the fun, fundamentals of uh, operating an EQ in general. Uh, so I think that that's really good to start with. I think we get a might get a little too caught up in the importance of having every new piece of thing because we think it's going to make our track sound better. If you know what you're <laughs> doing with the, the tools, um, uh, you know, you can, you can, if you know how to use a hammer, right, you can hammer in a nail, whether that hammer costs $5 or $500 the hammer that costs $500 probably has, uh, you know, a, a more balanced weight to it, uh, a smoother handle. You might not get as many blisters. You're not going to get any splinters on your hand. Um, you, you're going to have maybe a smoother process in doing it. Um, but either way, the nail is going to go into the wood. So I think that it's important for us to recognize that when we're getting, getting started to utilize the tools that we have as our, at our disposal and be more, more, uh, focused on investing our time and, and resources into, getting better, educating, you know, research, um, and then expanding the tools, um, as we get really comfortable with the technical practice of what we're using them for. Yeah. Many times I've, I've found over the years that, um, plugins, not, not like EQs and compressors, but, but a lot of the other plugins that I find myself gravitating towards help with the creative phase of the process. You know, it's, it's a different synth, it's a different processor. It's something that creates a sound or a particular effect. And it's like, oh, that's, that's neat. And then that triggers thoughts for the creativity piece. You know, everything I need to do, I can pretty much do with the tools that came with Ableton, but 
I enjoy plugins for the creative ideas that they spark. You know, good for creativity, bad for my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say that the the whole Sound Toys um, library is probably for me the 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 first, probably my first go to um, collection of creative based effects plugins that can definitely inspire creativity within within something. And they, they okay. just have so many different tools that do interesting things um, uh, to audio. Um, and I think from from synth world, um, I mean, a kind of mainstay for everybody is Omnisphere. Um, it's a good go to. They have great presets to start with um, and, uh, you know, some really good options. Um, I think that uh, Nexus is another um, really great thing to dive into. Their libraries can get, you know, a little bit wild when you want to load it. Um, loaded up with all the sounds that they offer, but, um, it's another one where there's, you know, there's good sounds. And recently I started using the Roland cloud, uh, where you can, you can access emulations of all of their vintage synths. And those things sound amazing and have definitely, I was working on a, on a, uh, vintage project where we were recreating, um, show tracks for a nineties band and, uh, th mm -hmm. they were doing uh, a tour. So we had to, we had to recreate, uh, these tracks cause they didn't have the stems for everything. And uh, fortunately, the artist remembered quite a bit of the pieces of equipment that they used to create the tracks. And so I was able to, we were able to uh, download the Roland Cloud and I could get the sound that they used from it without having to find that old piece of uh, vintage hardware, which was really cool. But then through that process, I, I, I just, I found some, uh, some really unique plugins in there and, um, and, uh, and sounds that were very memorable um, that just, you know, inspired a, uh, a, a new direction with things. So I, I definitely would agree that it's great for creativity to explore, you know, new options with that sort of stuff. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. We talked about masterclass earlier and I, I took, um, Armin Van Buren's, uh, masterclass last year. He's a huge trance artist. And one of, I had thought that a good approach to producing was to begin with just a piano sound, because if you can create something that's interesting with a piano, um, it's probably going to sound even more interesting. If you've got your basic chord structure and melody there, you know, be more interesting with a different sound. But it was interesting watching him because the first thing he did was pick a synth patch because he wanted to see how that synth patch interacted with the chords and the melody that he was playing. And so the, the, the synth patch was integral to the creative process for him and, and done right up front. It wasn't a question of coming up with your chords and melodies and then picking the patch. Interesting to watch his workflow. Yeah, the sounds can definitely um, direct, you know, the creativity in that way, especially with synths, because a lot of times, especially when you're, when you're not necessarily just sound designing from, uh, from just a, a wave, form but you're you're using a preset to start with there's different pitch things that are built into it and modulation that's in there and those and that movement within the sound that you're playing that note or that collection of notes or chord is going to sound significantly different from one sound to the other so if you find that that sound your 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 part may end up uh you know transforming based on how it sounds being played through that sound you might select different notes based on um the the resonance um, that's happening with it or the way that the modulation happens, you know, within the sound. Um, I want to at least touch on your process for mixing. Cause we didn't really delve into that last time when, when somebody asks you to mix a project, can you give us a quick walkthrough of, of what you do and what your uh, things you look out for, I guess. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so one of the first things that I ask for is references. Um, I want mm-hmm. references for a couple of reasons. Um, one is balance. Uh, different genres of music and then different subsets of genres of music often could have things balanced in a different way, where in, in one style, the vocal might be much more forward. Uh, and in another style, the bass might be more forward, or the, you know, the, the drums um, or the guitars, you know. Uh, so the different elements within it. And then also to get an idea of, of how processed, especially when it gets into to pop-driven stuff, you know, how processed does the artist want the vocal? How, how, how deep do they want the effects to be happening versus on the vocal versus the track itself? Um, and uh, just get a general idea of, you know, the different, um, the, the different sort of sonic, uh, uh, the, the, the sonic, um, just to get a general idea of the different sonic character uh, that an artist might be into, you know, within a track. And then once they give me some references, talk to them a bit more about uh, if they have any specific vision for the individual songs or for the record as a whole, if it's a single or if it's, you know, a group of songs, um, do they have any preconceived idea? Uh, is there a rough mix that they're happy with the balance of? Like they like where it's sitting, but they just want it to sound more high fidelity. Um, and then how much creative um, control do I have in the process? Are they going to, uh, be open to me muting something, uh, to be able to open up, you know, the arrangement or maybe changing out a sound on something. If I, if I think there's something that could help the track, you know, fit better. So having really good communication on the front end to know what their vision is, what they have in mind for it. And then to get some sonic references, because it can be challenging sometimes for artists to be able to use the vocabulary that you're going to understand and how they're explaining, you know, their music. But if we can have a sonic reference, then I can hear it. And then through listening to it, understand what type of treatment was done to that sound or that track to be able to get it there. Um, you know, a lot of, oftentimes artists aren't really able to distinguish the difference between like reverb and delay, for example. Um, and, and they might not know the right, uh, if the, there might be a certain type of reverb uh, that they, they want to hear, you know, it could be a plate or a chamber or a hall and, or a room. And if, uh, if they try to describe it, you know, it might be hard to translate what they are intending to say through it. But if they give you a sonic example, then you can use your ears and your expertise to be able to get a feel for, you know, where they want the, the track headed. And then as far as a, once I have a good understanding of the vision that the artist is going for, um, then it's just getting into the process. Uh, the first thing that I do is just listen to the song a few times, um, get comfortable understanding the arrangement and, uh, and where it's going to go. And then in my head, I'm determined, I'm, I'm making, I'm creating a sonic picture of, of what feels like it should stand out. Uh, what things feel like they might be masking each other, what things need more like surgical work and what things might need more creative work. Um, and, uh, am I hearing any specific effects that could really like transform a certain section of the song? Uh, just getting a feel for, for where it sits. Um, and, and once I feel like I have a good feel for, uh, for the track as a whole and where it needs to go, then I start by focusing on whatever the most essential element is in the song. Um, and, uh, and that's not always the drums. So, in, uh, you know, it could be traditionally said that, you know, you kind of start a mix with the drums and get the foundation, but. Um, you know, in some cases there's a, there's just a magical vocal performance that really needs to be the, the spotlight. Um, and the vocal is always going to be, you know, front and center, but in, in some cases we might want other things around it to support it. And in other cases, the vocal might just be its own incredible lead instrument, you know, on its own. Um, 
So I want to know, you know, where that sits. Um, sometimes it's tough for me to figure out how to, um, how to set the balance of the drums and how heavy I might want, um, you know, the kick versus the snare and, and where the hat should sit. If there's a bright, um, like plucky, like synth thing that's going through it, uh, or if there's a real big piano sound, um, I want to make a decision about, or bass sound, you know, uh, make a decision about what, where the relationship is going to be and what's going to take, you know, front and center. So as I'm listening to that song, I'm figuring out what, what's going to sort of cover the different fundamental, uh, frequencies of the different ranges of things. So if we look at like the bottom end of the track is the kick drum and is there like a sub or, or an 808 sort of thing that's, uh, that's really pulsing in the, in the sub frequencies in the bottom end. Or is the kick intended to be more of a of a mid range, uh, you know, percussion and attack and punch sort of thing? And maybe there's this really thick sub bass that is supposed to cover, you know, that end. Um, and then you look at the the synths and where they might sit, um, or the the guitars and uh, piano, you know, other instruments that might be in the track, uh, and where do they have their sort of fundamental place that they're supposed to be in, and how prominent should they be? So as I'm getting a vision for that, I'm making a determination about what elements I'm going to, I'm going to start with. Uh, once that foundational element is there, then I just start bringing in the next, uh, elements of the track based on what the next level of import importance is. Um, so if I'm starting in a more traditional way where the drums are the most important thing, then my next thing is probably going to be whatever that, um, and the bass and then whatever that, uh, main like rhythmic instrument is that, that sort of, uh, exists within the entire song. Um, and then through that process, uh, I'm, I'm always have the vocal uh, at least sitting in a good spot so I can be, uh, either listening to it through the whole thing, uh, or depending upon the style of the song, I might be working on the track a bit and then bringing the vocal in and making sure it's still sitting right. Um, but I definitely, uh, have found that it's, um, often a challenging, uh, mix process. If you wait to try to get the vocals in after you have this track, like pr pristinely mixed. Um, because there's certain um, uh, harmonic frequencies within the vocal that you might have been covering up because that element wasn't in there. And now the track is so loud and you're trying to find a way to be able to find space for the vocal when the <laughs> vocal is supposed to be the really important you know, driving force within it. So I always have that up. Sometimes it might be muted if I'm working on trying to get a groove to feel right or get a certain like energy in there. Um, and... Uh, and I try to not solo things for very long, um, you know, on their own, uh, because you start maybe carving things out a bit too much where you take an energy, you know, away from, away from the track and really need to hear it and make those decisions in context, you know, with everything else, um, uh, that's happening. Uh, but that, that's sort of my basic foundational, you know, uh, approach for how I get started with the mix. Yeah, that sounds like a great, very logical approach. Um, how, how do you avoid ear fatigue? I mean, we've all listened to tracks hundreds of times and then it's, you know, you, you get to a point where it's just like, it all kind of sounds the same. Um, well, I uh, don't listen at very loud volumes. If I need to hear something loud in order to get a good reference, um, I'll do that for a moment and then, uh, you know, and then pull it back down make sure that I find a nice, um, level that's loud enough, but not too loud, uh, to listen to, cause I'm going to be listening to this song for a while. Uh, I definitely take breaks. Um, so I try to compartmentalize my mix process. Once I determine what those like priority elements are, um, I get say the, say the main foundation of the track is going to be the drums and the bass. 
So I get the drums and bass sitting where they need to be. And then I might take a break for five minutes and just have silence, have my ears, you know, refreshed and then come back to that, listen to it, make sure it's still sitting where it needs to, and then move on to the, you know, to the next, um, uh, element. Uh, I also prefer to mix in the morning. Um, when my ears are fresh, I haven't been listening to things all day. Um, so I, I, I avoid like having like a, a, a tracking session where I'm cutting tracks all day and then trying to mix something at night after, uh, my ears have been, uh, really highly focused on, you know, on, on sonic information and stuff for a long period of time. Um, and, uh, and then just, I don't know, listen, listen to my ears. And when I start to feel like, man, you know, I'm, I'm really not, uh, pinpointing those, those, those little elements as well as I, I could be right now, you know, having something else to, to move on to and then come back to it when I need to, instead of trying to force, you know, force myself through the process, um, which sometimes happens. Um, and I also think that we, that at least for me, I have to be in like a, a certain type of creative and focused frame of mind in order to get mixes that I'm really happy with on the first, uh, you know, run through. So I also try to schedule the time that I mix things around times where I'm going to be, have the most mental capacity. So for example, if I'm working on a record and I have four days of tracking and then one day left in the week, I'm not going to start mixing after I got done a different project after I got done tracking for, you know, for four days, uh, I'm going to find something else. I'm going to do some editing on that day. Um, maybe do, do something a little bit more low key and then have, you know, a day break in between, uh, to where the, then, the, then the next day I, I haven't been as, um, you know, uh, highly focused on, um, listening so intently, you know, to stuff. And then I can, I can dive in with a little bit, you know, fresher ears. Um, you know, when you're doing this full time and, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, um, they can, you can definitely, you know, battle with that, you know, ear fatigue. And I found that just the combination between like, listening volume, taking breaks, and then organizing your schedule in a way that is going to put your mixing time in, in the most effective time for you uh, to work, um, I think is probably the keys for my process. Okay. Do, do you find yourself trying to mix multiple songs sort of back to back where, you know, you might do a country song and an EDM song because they're different enough that your ears can sort of reset or do you always try to finish one song before you move on to the next? Yeah, not typically. I typically just work on one song in a day. Um, okay. I, I get really hyper-focused on the, on the process. Um, and I don't use any templates. Uh, I really like just starting from the ground up and not, uh, basing decisions off of a preconceived thing. Um, I know there's a lot of people that work off of templates and do great work. Um, I just personally find myself more fulfilled when I can start from the ground up, uh, with a clean slate, uh, and just paint the picture. So with that, um, I, uh, I definitely take a good amount of time, um, on a track to get the first, uh, you know, mix together. So I like to just focus on, on, on one song, have one intention, um, uh, for the day when I'm going through that process. Uh, the only, um, the, the, the only time where I would do more than one song would be if I was working on a record where it might be like a rock band uh, or an Americana group or a blues artist or something like that. And the songs are all pretty similar sonically. They're just, you know, they're just different songs, but they were tracked with a band live in a room. Um, mm. And then in, the, in those cases, sometimes I can work on a couple songs in a day and, uh, and still feel, you know, good with, with the process. Or if I'm mixing like a live concert, you know, or something like that, um, the, the, or like an acoustic series or something. 
uh, those sort of things. But I definitely wouldn't mix a country song and then and then an EDM song uh, right after it in the in the same day. It's just too big of a of a different um, like mindset, you know, and, and process to be in. Um, and I don't want to be mixing that long um, either to make sure that I'm just you know my ears are fresh and you know and focused. So I try to schedule um, my my mixing time where I'm mixing like you know, the good portion of the, of the day starting early in the morning. And then in the evening, I might have a vocal session come in or an overdub session or something like that. Um, and then pick back up the next day with the next song. Um, if I'm working on, you know, a project, uh, just try to organize the schedule that way. Okay. Terrific. Well, um, what are you, we're a little past new year's resolutions, but what are you excited about for 2022? What, what's in the works for the record shop? I'm really excited to just be able to continue to explore new ways to be valuable with artists. I know that's kind of like a generalized, you know, sort of thing. But when I get too focused on like, um, I don't know, one specific thing or one specific like intention rather than the, the overall thing, um, I can get a little overwhelmed with myself about like that being, you know, the thing. Um, so I have very, very clear goals. Um, but, but those goals I set more is like the impact of what we're going to do, um, as opposed to like one specific project or, you know, or one specific thing. So I'm just really excited to be able to keep, um, expanding upon, uh, the, the diversity of the type of work that we do, um, to, to be able to just keep things really interesting, um, and, uh, you know, grow the business to be it for us to be able to continue to really focus on projects that we love. And, um, and work, work with artists that we think are, are making a strong impact with the art that they're creating. Well, that's, that's terrific. And I'm, we'll have to have you back on in another year and see, see what new projects you've taken on and how the business has grown. And I, I know everybody's going to be really interested in hearing all of uh, mixing advice you gave and, and uh, it's been a, been a great episode. I really appreciate your time tonight, Gio. Yeah, my pleasure. Great chatting with you, man. And I'm happy to be back anytime. Sounds good. Where where can people find the record shop online? Uh, the record shop Nashville.com and uh, Instagram at the record shop studios. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, I'll have links in the show notes page and uh, thank you again. Have a terrific night. Thanks, man. You too. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and don't forget to leave a rating and review wherever you're listening. And now, as promised, here's a sneak peek of my new track, Arigato, which will be out on all major platforms March 1st. Enjoy. And until next time, don't forget to be somebody's hero today. Hey.